Part of, uh, of being a carnal person is you're seeing divisions happen. And Paul's saying this is a lot of the root of what's taking place is carnality is leading to division. Here's the problem of division. Why it's not good is that it weakens the witness of the church in a community. It weakens our witness of the love of Christ in the unity that we have with Christ. D.L. Moody, he said, I have never yet known the Spirit of God to work where the Lord's people were divided. Welcome to Refuge Podcast, a weekly Bible study for young adults at Calvary Chapel, San Juan Capistrano. Our study through first corinthians so let's read <laughs> brought my glasses this time let's read um the first couple of verses and then we'll we'll get into our study wow would you look at that man they work that is so cool don't make fun of me verse five we're gonna pick up in verse five tonight it says who then is paul and who is apollos but ministers through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his labor. Well, uh, like we said the, the past couple of weeks, this book is a, uh, it's a book written by the Apostle Paul to the church that was in Corinth. It is a responsive Letter, meaning that Paul's responding to them to some of the questions that they'd asked him. But for the first six chapters, he spends correcting different issues that the church had. And so for the first six chapters, he's going to be giving us um, some really deep rebukes and some things that were going on that he's correcting. Actually, Chloe's house reported to Paul, meaning that she ratted them out as to the things that were going on. And so Paul is writing with that intention of correcting them. And, and like we've said before, it's always good to be reminded that correction is a sign of love. It is a sign of love because you care about someone, you care enough to tell them the truth, the hard things. And Paul loves the church in Corinth in such a way. I mean, the second letter that he writes to them, he talks about just how deeply he loves them and cares for them. And that's why he wrote this letter of correction. And so he'll say some really hard things, some difficult things, as well as um, just basic principles for life. As we'll get further into the book, it talks about being married, talking about being single. It talks about uh, God, how to basically use your life to glorify God in whatever season that you're in. It talks about um, really dark sin. It talks about some really deep sins that are um, actually infecting the rest of the church and affecting us. And so what we're learning is that as we come together as the body of Christ, it we don't live this life alone as islands, but we are in this together and it affects who we are. So the way that you walk with Christ, it affects me in the way that I walk with Jesus. It actually, um, as we all are a part of the body of Christ, it really is something that 
um, either we rise together or we fall together. And so um, that's kind of our theme. And so they were people that were saved. They were going to heaven, the church in Corinth, but they were dealing with some issues of carnality. And last week we looked at the four stages of spiritual growth. We looked at um, mere men or uh, the unregenerated man. We looked at the baby in Christ as someone who first comes to Jesus, what that's like. We looked at the spiritual man, what the characteristics of a spiritual man or woman looks like. And then also the carnal person, what a carnal person is. Now, a carnal Christian and a spiritual Christian, or, or what we would say is a, a you know, growing Christian, someone who's growing in their walk with Jesus, both are going to heaven. I hope we make that distinction. But the way in which you get there is going to be a different experience, right? It's like when you travel on a plane, we talked about last week, when you travel on a plane, you can travel first class, which all of us want to, right? As you pass by those seats and, and head back to seat 101F, and you're like, oh man, I know where this is headed, and you're sitting next to someone who need, you know, has a chicken, and you're like, what are all the freaks doing back here, right? And there you are. Your seatbelt's just a rope with a carabiner on the end, and it's like, this, these are the cheap seats, right? But you look at the people in first class, comfy, wide seat. I mean, they are relaxed. They are getting off the plane refreshed. And here you are with just, you feel like death getting off that plane. Isn't it interesting that the destination is you could arrive to your terminal? You ever thought about that when you're flying? Like it's terminal. We're going to arrive at our terminal. Death is something that's terminal. It's kind of terrifying when you think about it. All that to say that the Christian life is, is, is like that. We're all, if, you're, if you believe in Jesus Christ, guess what? You are going to heaven. You're going to heaven. That's where we will end up. That's our destiny, our eternal destiny. It's where we're going. How you choose to travel in your walk with Jesus is really dependent upon how you, if you refuse to grow. Because there are certain things that the Bible lays out for us in ways that we are to grow in our walk with Jesus, to be rooted in his word. And we, we, I think we simplified it last week is simply to listen to what God says, read his word, and then do it. That is the meat of God's word. The meat of God's word is not something hidden that we're like, what is the meat? Where can I find it? It's a secret code of how to walk with Jesus. God would be sick and sadistic if he hid that part of his will for you. But yet the meat of God's word is simply to read it and then to obey what God says. That is maturity. That is spiritual growth. That is the meat of God's word. It's not some kind of hidden secret. But if you refuse to do what God says, your growth in Jesus Christ and your growth in your walk with God will be stunted. And the way that you get to heaven and the experience that you have in this life will be different than someone who chooses to walk in the ways of Christ, right? That was a quick little synopsis of last week. But what we have in the church are divisions. And Paul says one of the evidence of carnality, one of the evidences of uh, immaturity is division. Look what he says in verse, I think, I believe it's three. I should really just wear these the whole time. Verse three, it says, for you are still carnal, for where there are envy, strife, divisions among you, are you not carnal? So part of, uh, of being a carnal person is you're seeing divisions happen. And Paul's saying this is a lot of the root of what's taking place is carnality is leading to divisions. And they saw Paul and Apollos as competitors instead of teammates. 
They were doing the same thing, but just in a different way. And they're arguing that these men were contrary instead of complementary. Like, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter, I'm of Christ. And they were exalting themselves based upon who they were being discipled by. And the problem with division, okay, we're not going to spend a ton of time talking about division, but here's the problem of division, why it's not good, is that it weakens the witness of the church in a community. It weakens our witness of the love of Christ in the unity that we have with Christ. D.L. Moody, he said, I have never yet known the spirit of God to work where the Lord's people were divided. And it's true where we see factions and schisms of Christianity all based upon sometimes method. And we're going to get to the other side of it for a second. Just doing things differently than one another, but believing the same thing. The mission is the same. The goal is the same. And we have to ask ourselves the question, why does the church even exist? Right? I have to ask myself that all the time. Like, what am I doing with my life? Right? Anyone? No? <laughs> so, never mind. Maybe that was a little too transparent. But if you ever ask, like, what am I doing with my life? Like, why am I going to church? It seems to be the question of young people all over the world. Like, why do I need to go to church? Anyone ever ask that question? Like, I can stay home and have a little YouTube theology. You know what I mean? Like, just watch some great teacher from some other state. Like, I can just sit here and access any great Bible teacher I want. And you're like, none of you are ever going to come back. But, you know, I can access anyone at any time in any place. Why do I need to gather amongst God's people? If you ever ask yourself that question, you're in good company. Why does the church exist in a community in the first place? What is its purpose? The first purpose is, it is to introduce people to Jesus who have never heard of him before. The first mission of the church is to introduce people to Jesus who have never heard of him before. And the second one is to bring, them, bring with them and bring with us the kingdom of God wherever we go. That we bring in and usher in this newfound kingdom in Jesus Christ where we're ruled and reigned by God, no longer bound to our flesh and ruled by the air and the power and the prince of the air of this world, the devil himself. We're no longer ruled by that. We have freedom in Christ. We've been free from the power of sin to live a different kind of life. And that is the mission and why the church exists. It is centered upon and surrounds the worship and exaltation of Jesus Christ. That's why we study his word. It's so that Christ is lifted up in our life. It's so that Christ would, would take deeper hold in our heart and that people would see Jesus, not just see us as mere people. But when it comes to keeping something pure and whole and united, look at what Romans 16 says. Romans 16, 17, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause division and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Hold on a second. Talking about unity here. That sounds awfully divisive to me. Hold on, there's more. Titus chapter three, it says, reject a divisive person after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning. So the Bible's remedy for division is division. Isn't that fascinating? When someone comes in with another gospel, preaching another way, 
preaching something against God's word, Paul the apostle says the, the remedy for that is division, separate from them, mark them, the Bible says. To those who would come to your house in their suit and their, their helmet, he says, to them, do not even let them in your house, those the liars, and, and bringing in these false doctrines. He says, mark them, mark them. I, I knew a guy who, he was working on his roof one day, he's a very large man, probably 6'5", but he looked like a, a triangle, you know, just like shoulders, waist, like just this beefy contractor man, Bill. Remember Bill, Sean? Name is Bill. <laughs> Sean remembers. You cannot forget Bill. Covered in tattoos. Big old guy. He always had a hammer for some reason. And he's up on his roof. And he's fixing something on his roof. And these two guys came up um, from the Mormon church to, to evangelize him. And he has his hammer in his hands. And he says, you get out of here. You get out of here. You don't come back to this neighborhood ever. And if I see you in this neighborhood, I'll chase you out of here. And he has his hammer in his hand. He's this beast of a man. And he's telling me the story. And I'm like, interesting. Like, I don't know if that was the correct way to come at it. There's like probably a loving, gracious way. But, but he goes, hey, he, it says in the word to mark them. And I was like, yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're right, Bill. As I'm looking up, like trying to tell this guy what to do. Because the church is designated for the glorification of Jesus and impacting the world for the kingdom, it must remain separated from certain things in order to do that. So there is a place for division, but what, that's not what the Corinthians were dividing over. It wasn't these salvific issues. It wasn't doctrinal issues. It was things like preacher preference. Like who you like to listen to based on, like, oh, we're of this guy and we're of this guy. I'm a disciple of this. No other gospel, no other savior, right? There, there has been the attempt to contaminate the pure and holy word of God. And so we separate from those in order to maintain the integrity of the word of God, marking them as those who would be divisive to lead people astray. But Paul asked two questions here. Who is Paul and who is Apollos? Now, he could answer these questions in a different way, right? He says, basically, like, we're nothing. He says later in the verses, we are nothing. We're no one. We're nobodies. In chapter 4, he says, let, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. That word uh, servant is a different word that, that designates as someone who is a galley slave, someone who would be under a ship rowing a boat. They row to the cadence of, a diff, uh, of the master. That's simply, they have no name, they have no face. Paul says, that's who we are. Getting people to a destination, that's who we are. But he could have answered it by saying, um, I don't know if you've heard of me, but I was Saul of Tarsus, studied under Gamaliel of uh, the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised the eighth day, hollowed my parents. You know, he could have been so descriptive of, the, of his upbringing, of the things that he had done, his accolades, all his education, the fact that he saw Jesus in person. The fact that Jesus took him into the desert and taught him personally for three years about who he was. The fact that he was elected to be an apostle by the apostles. He could have said that. And if he said, who is Apollos? He could have said, Apollos, 
man, as an educated man, he debates the Jews of the Jews. I mean, the highest of highs. He goes in and he reasons with them from the word of God to prove that Jesus is the Christ. He debates with the Jewish elites that Jesus is the Messiah. But he doesn't answer that way. What does he say? He says that we are ministers. We are ministers. And the reason he answers that way is because he knew had he answered with all of their accolades, it only would have put them or pit them against each other even more. And it says something about human condition. It says something about who we are in the tweak that sin has made in our life and done in our life is that we love to elevate those that we can see. And the reason that we're drawn and we elevate people to a level is because we can see them rather than see past them to the invisible God who has used them and anointed them, right? That's, that's the purpose of it, is to glory in God to those that God uses. It's to his testament of what God can do in a life that's turned over to him. But the church was saying that these two, these two men were contrary instead of complementary. And so Paul is going to introduce three concepts true of both Paul and Apollos. And he says, first of all, that we are ministers. The second one is we are farmers. And the third one is we are builders, Farmers, no, ministers, farmers, builders. And all of us, if we're to serve Jesus, we need to see ourselves this way as well. So this applies directly to us as servants of the king. But he says in verse five, <coughs> sorry, I'm like talking way too fast. When he says in verse five, gotta get the cardio going. Just kidding, I don't run ever. <laughs> Running's just not the thing. Like if you see me running, you should run too. Because <laughs> there's like a tornado or a rhino or something horrible behind me, right? So, sorry. Moving on. We are ministers, he said. The word minister is the word diakonos in the Greek. It's where we get our word deacon, but it means one who executes the commands of another, especially of a master, a servant, an attendant, a minister. It's where we get our word deacon, but it carries the idea of waiter or waitress. Some, some of you are waiters and waitresses right now, and you're like, I want to extend out of that. That's not what I want to identify myself as, as always. Like, I, this, is, I, this is a stepping stool or whatever. I don't know. Anyway, I was a busboy once. Come on, man. Chips and salsa was my job. Brought chips and salsa to the people. And one time, I accidentally put my thumb in someone's salsa. It was disgusting. But that is the idea... You ever done that when you're like concentrating here, but you're holding something here and then that's what was happening. I was holding drinks and um, I don't know, I'm big and clumsy and I drop stuff. And so I was really focused because I had spilled on people before. And so I was like here and I had a thing of salsa and my thumb slipped in and I was like, as I'm putting down the salsa, I realized like my thumb and so I'm, <laughs> Do one of these? Sorry. Anyway, but the idea is someone who, who simply asks someone, like, what do you need? What would you like? And they go back to the chef, right? And they say, put these orders in, cook what this is what they want. And they bring it back out to the people and say, is there anything else I can get you? Right? Those of you that are in that profession. I'm, I'm just here as a servant. I, I relay the message back and forth. Paul says, that's what we are. 
I relay the message back and forth. I'm here to stand in the gap. I bring what, what is made and I, I, what has been provided and I bring it to these that need it, to feed upon, uh, upon Jesus Christ. And so Paul is saying here, we are simply ministers, servants. They are the, we are not the producers of it or the makers of it, but we're the conduit of the gospel. We're not the ones who produced it. We're not the ones who saved you. We're not the ones who brought salvation into your life. We're simply the conduit or the piece in which God used to bring the, the message of salvation to you. We're, that's all we are. And the picture that Paul paints of him and of Paul's is that of servants, that they are under the authority of another, each doing the same thing in a different way. Now, the Bible tells us that being in the kingdom of God is something that, that is not just a future kingdom that we'll be a part of, but it's with us now. It's currently in us. We live in it. We are children of the king. And that is something that is a present reality within us. And the Bible tells us that is an upside down kingdom, isn't it? That the way up is the way down. And the world tells us that the way up is by starting at the bottom and working your way up, which is, there's nothing wrong with hard work, starting at the bottom, working your way up, excelling, getting that promotion, like, God bless, do it. Like, that's a great thing. But in the kingdom of God, it's opposite, where it doesn't start at serving at the bottom, but serving is the top. That's where it is. It is greatness. The Bible says, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, learn to be the servant of all, Jesus said. Matthew chapter 20, verse 26, it says, um, and Jesus called them and said to them, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great others exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In the world, serving leads to greatness. In God's kingdom, servanthood is greatness. And Jesus is the model of that. So Paul's saying, we're ministers. Just as Christ laid his life down and came to serve, that's all we are. And we're here to serve. We are all doing the same thing, but in a different way, he says. And we don't divide. Listen, as a church, as the body of Christ, we do not divide over method. We divide over incorrect doctrine. Does that make sense? We divide over incorrect, leading people astray from the person of Jesus. That's where we draw the line and say, that is wrong. Mark them. Stay away from there. And as a shepherd, the Bible says that we are under shepherds to the great shepherd. Our, our job as pastors is to mark things as, hey, that's unhealthy. Don't eat that. Don't eat that. Don't go there. That is unhealthy. That is unwise doctrine. That is misleading doctrine. Now, people do church in many different ways. They have different methods of doing things. And that's where the creativity of the body of Christ is such a blessed thing. We don't divide necessarily over method. We divide over incorrect doctrine. And Paul is saying here, we came as ministers to the gospel. And that is all we are. There is no need for division. You're arguing something that is, is not something to argue over. They're arguing over like, you know, whether... Uh, Coke out of the fountain and Coke out of a can, which one is better? And they're saying, essentially, they're the same thing. And all of you, some of you are like, you know which one's better, Andrew. 
I think we all know which one's better. It's a debate, right? We're all like, oh, but essentially, what is it? It's Coke. It's the same thing. We're, we're arguing over method. It's not something to argue over. It's certainly not something to divide over. So we are all doing the same thing in different ways. Paul says we're here as ministers. That was, and that is the method. Servanthood is the method of the kingdom to bring the kingdom in. And he says, um, secondly, is that we are farmers. Now, he doesn't say it directly, right? It says, <clears throat> oh, man, I feel like such an old geezer right now. No offense to anyone who wears glasses, but... <laughs> Sorry, front row. Sorry. <laughs> I'm just going to stop talking about my glasses. I apologize. Please... Don't divide over this. Okay, so he says, verse five, or verse six, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Now, planted and watered doesn't exactly say, Paul doesn't say, hey, I'm a farmer. But he uses the language of a farmer, planting or planter or waterer. Those are the language or the words of farming. Farming in the Bible is used as an illustration of evangelism. Evangelism, if you don't know, is something that happens as we share what Christ has done for us and in us. And when we share with a coworker or a neighbor how you gave your life to Jesus, and the Bible likens the gospel then to seed that is being sown or being scattered or being planted. And the heart of a person is soil. And you can read that in the gospels, this parable that Jesus tells of a sower who goes out to sow. He spreads seed all over the place. Some falls by the wayside. Some falls on rocky soil, some on thorny soil. Some lands on a, on a hard place, and then a, the, the birds come in and swoop in. And the point of that whole parable in which Jesus teaches, and that's a whole Bible study in and of itself, but he's talking about the condition of human heart and the way that the word of God or the gospel falls upon someone's heart. And sometimes the birds come and snatch it away, which birds in the Bible often represent as a type of uh, demonic forces or the devil would come in and, and just snatch it up real quick. Those who are hard-hearted to the gospel, those who have, um, you know, Jesus explains all those things in that story. And Paul likens it here. Um, he says, we're, we're watering, we're planting. That is our job. We're farmers in that sense. The Bible paints a picture of the work of, a, of an evangelist by using the image of a farmer. What is, I don't know, farming's hard work. I don't know if any of you like to garden. I personally love, <clears throat> me and Kyle, we love, Kyle and I love plants, okay? We love plants, I love gardening, I love landscaping. If I was anything other than a pastor, I would be a landscaper. And just, I love it. I was digging outside today. It was fantastic. I got plans to go to a nursery on Monday. I'm excited. I'm just being way too honest with you. But if, there, if you've known anything about it, today as I was just digging in, in our flower bed, I was sweating. And you're like, what's different about that? You're always sweating. No, but it's hard work. It's difficult. If you've ever tried to grow something from seed, it is hard work. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 6. Paul's talking to a young pastor and he's saying to him, do the work of an evangelist like a farmer. He says, it is the hard working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. However, the difficulty of it, it cannot deter us from participating in it is the point. 
Doing the work of evangelism is difficult. Sharing the gospel, Jesus doesn't make it like, paints this picture of it's so easy. He says, if you come in my name, guess what? People are going to hate you. They're going to hate you. And they're going to tell you to your face. They're going to hate the message because they don't hate you. They hate them. They hate the person that it's about. It's the reality that we all face is that evangelism is hard. Sharing the gospel is hard work. But it cannot deter us from doing what God has called us to do. And that's what Paul says. We planted. We watered. It was hard. It was difficult. But God gave the increase. All glory be to God. It takes patience. James chapter 5. It says, be patient therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and latter rain. The farmer is to be patient. We cannot give up. I don't know about you, but like giving up, if it was an Olympic sport, I have gold at this point. You try and you're like, I give up. This is just too hard. What's the point? You know, like, but, but being patient in the result. Those of you that have friends and family that you've prayed for for years, like to come to Christ, and they just nothing is hitting. Man, they are so hard to the gospel. And even now you're seeing like fury rise up in their bones, like poison coming from them as they are just vicious now even more against the gospel. Let us not grow weary in doing good, the Bible says. Doing the work of a farmer is hard and it takes patience. But notice that what, what is taking place, there is a cooperation as well. It's not just you doing the work of a waterer or work of a planter. He says sometimes you plant, sometimes you water. Um, but he says there is cooperation that's taking place. In 1 Corinthians 3, 6, he says in our text, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. They have the same goal, the same mission, and the same person who is in charge. When we step into an evangelistic conversation, if you get that, that opportunity, we are stepping into ground that someone else has either planted or watered in. So you're not, you're not understand that God has placed you there for a reason. That this might be the sixth, seventh person that week, that month, whatever, that has begun to bring up the name of Jesus. And they're going, why does this keep coming up in my life? God has placed you there. God has planted you there in someone else's labor. Listen, you are the Christian that someone else has been praying for. I don't know about you if you've ever prayed that prayer. Like, God, just put someone, you know, um, people will come up and ask us, like, hey, man, can you pray for my uncle? He's not saved. And we always pray, God, put, put a Christian in their path. Put people around them who, who will, will preach the gospel to them. Listen, you might be the Christian that someone has prayed for. You might be the Christian that someone has prayed for and God has placed you there where, where the soil of that person's heart is being stirred up, where there has been a seed of the gospel and someone has come along and watered and you get to come along also and water and be a part of that um, amazing process. So understand, man, you are part, there is a cooperation that's taking place, but we're dependent, the, the fourth one is we are dependent upon God. It depends on God to give the increase. And Paul, that's what Paul's saying. We, we watered, we planted, we continued to do the hard work, but it was God who came along and his light shined upon it and caused it to grow. We're, we're dependent upon the Holy Spirit. 
It does not, listen, it does not depend solely upon you. The salvation of other people does not solely depend upon you. We are dependent upon God. The Bible, we have to believe what the Bible says in John chapter 12, where Jesus says that he will draw all men unto himself. Jesus is the draw. There's a thing that Spurgeon said, uh, Charles Spurgeon, he says, Christ, the mighty magnet. I was like, yeah, the mighty magnet. He is the draw, and he will draw all men unto himself as he is lifted up, and, and, and people are, are able to see Christ. There's power. The Bible tells us there's power in the seed, and there is provision in the environment, but it is God who gives the increase. Now, the third one is, and we'll close here, or at this point, there's more, sorry, but the builder, the third one is the builder, verses 9 through 11. He says, for we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field. You are God's building. And according to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, Lego movie, if you haven't seen it, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it, for no other foundation can, be, can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. It says that we are builders. He's painting a picture for us here. He says, the foundation of our life is Christ, right? There is no other foundation. Jesus said, don't build, don't build your house on the shore. Remember the song? Build your house on the sandy land. Um, <laughs> he tells this parable of, of two houses that are built. One builds on the sand, one builds on the rock. There is no other foundation than Christ. Everything else is sinking sand, the Bible tells us. And Jesus laid his life down, and others have laid their life down as the foundation of what we now believe and what we build our life upon. And you are God's building, meaning that God is building you up. He's the one who's fashioning you. He's the one who's drawing you unto himself. The structure that has been raised up is your life. So what are you building your life upon? What, meaning, like, what decisions are you making that you are not basing upon the foundation, which is Christ? Everything has a center. Everything must have a center. That's why the, the solar system that we live in, the sun is at its center. I, I read this week that Pluto is some nine, if you believe it's a planet or whatever, but nine billion years away. Like, it's that far away. It would take that long to get there or some crazy number. It's in the billions. But the sun's gravitational pull is so strong that it keeps it close enough. As far out as that could be, Pluto is still orbiting around the sun. It is still the center. Everyone's life has a center that you revolve everything around. And Paul is saying, you are God's building and the foundation or the center, the bedrock of your life, it is Christ Jesus. And God is building you up and, and causing you to grow. You are God's building. We came alongside and helped. We drove in a nail. But it is God who is building you up, he says. But notice what he, he calls us. What kind of building are we? Verse 16. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now you're going to notice that phrase come up over and over in the next few, week, uh, few weeks. Do you not know? He's going to use that phrase. Because obviously this is something that they should know. And we'll get to re the reason why that's not taking place. Do you not know that you are God's temple? So what kind of building is God building us into? Temples. 
The temple was dedicated for the glorification of God. It is where God's glory fell. It is where man met with God. It is where the atonement of sin was taking place. It is, I mean, the imagery of the temple, we could go on and on, and I don't want to harm you through an hour and 40 minute Bible study. So look it up, the temple, like what it was for. The glorification of God is where the glory of God fell. That's what it's about. You, your life is for the glorification of Jesus Christ. To bring glory to the name of God. To exalt him in your life. But it was also dedicated for, not only for the glorification of God, but that others might know who he is. Right? Israel is centrally located in the world. And the reason it, that God chose that place for his special people, the Jews, and why he said that this is where uh, I will set up my new kingdom, like the new Jerusalem. Why, why that is the hub and why God chose that in the Old Testament is because every single person was to see that as the center. That light would shine, that all would be drawn to God. It was a place in which Israel was centrally located so that people would know about the living God. And there was, there was a, a place called the Gentile court. They could come, and the reason for that place, they could not go past this certain wall, otherwise they would die. But there was a wall place set up for them, the Gentile court, where Jesus goes in later and turns over tables and drives people out. And he says, you have made my father's house a place where people would come to hear about the true and living God. You've made it into a place place of merchandise, a den of thieves. It's to be a house of prayer dedicated to the Lord. And he drives them all out. He had to do it twice, twice, two times. It all crept back in. And actually it was Caiaphas who was the main moneymaker off of that. That's why he was so mad. You know, you know Caiaphas is one of the high priests who, who was there at the trial of Jesus Christ to put him to death. So Jesus drives it out, hits him in his pocket and he doesn't like it. That place was dedicated so that people could come to learn about the true and living God. The temple, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is where God dwells. It is for the purpose of the glorification of God and so that others would know who Jesus is. So, he makes reference here to what kind of building materials that we use. In verse 12, he says, Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but to himself uh, he will be saved. Yet, so as through fire, do you not know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? He makes mention of different building materials, wood, hay, stubble, and then gold, silver, and precious stone. Each one will be set on fire. <laughs> um, sorry. Each one is set on fire. Now, there's two different results to what happens to, what happens to wood, hay, and stubble when you set it on fire. It burns. When you set gold, silver, and precious stone on fire, what happens? It's refined. It's refined. It's made better. And what Paul is saying here is Christ is the foundation of your life. What are you building with? Is it 
stuff that's going to burn up and is useless and won't last? Or is it something that will last into eternity? Be careful how you build upon the foundation of Jesus's cross and his blood. This is a warning that he gives. Be careful how you build upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. But there's grace. Listen, there's grace, man. We, I have made some really bad decisions in my life. And I am so thankful for the grace of God. I'm so thankful that someday I'll stand before him and he's going to light my works on fire and all the stupid stuff is going to burn. And what's real and what was eternal is going to last. And I'm going to say, thank you, God, for your grace. Right? That place of where he's talking about on that day, it's not a, a day in which God is going to judge us and sit down and be like, all right, day 37, I saw what you did. <laughs> like, it's not a judgment of sin. It's a place of reward for the believer. And so the grace of God is something that we long for. He says, if anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy. Which temple are you? Or which temple you are? <laughs> Switching the words and adding a question mark um, really changes things, doesn't it? For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. He says, this is a call for the church to be exactly what Jesus intended for it to be, something that is holy. Holy. The Bible tells us, be holy for I am holy, First Peter says. Um, if there's ever a time in which we are being refined as the body of Christ, it's now. There is, it's, man, it feels like we're on fire. And for the purpose of refining us, God doesn't just burn away works in order to destroy who we are or, or make us feel like any less of people, but to bring us to a place of, of con confessing sin, to turning from those things, to continue to build upon this, the, the foundation which is Christ. But he's saying here, be holy. That's what the temple is for. It's to be holy. And so like Jesus came into the temple and drove that stuff out, cracked the whip. I mean, talk about, you know, can you imagine Jesus meek and mild healing people and he's like, come to me and give me hugs and, or whatever. <laughs> Paraphrasing, obviously. Learned that at Bible college. Um, and he's in the corner, like in the temple, in the corner, and the disciples are like, what are you, what are you doing? What are you up to? And he's like, just making a little braid and a whip that I will then use upon the backs of these. You know, he starts cracking this whip. And then meek and mild Jesus walks up to a table and starts flipping them over, whipping and flipping. Jesus just driving stuff out and casting this out. And you're like, what is going on? It, it, the, the details of that story, do you know why it's in there? Why the Holy Spirit saw fit to tell us those details? is to remind us that Jesus is concerned about what goes on in his temple. You are his temple. And he is very interested and he is very concerned about what is going on. And guess what? He sees all. He sees all. So, so if anything, if stuff needs to be driven out, let him drive it out. Not you trying to like, you know, kind of get things ready or clean things up. Let him flip it over, drive it out, get rid of it. And listen, don't let it creep back in. 
You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Do you not know? I think that question comes in my mind every time I'm about to do something sinful or selfish or stupid. There's this wonderful question that comes. Hey, do you not know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? Yes, I do know. <laughs> Reminds me of Samson. Where Samson kills this lion. And he's specifically told... Do not touch dead things. Dead things, Mikey, dead things. That's from Goonies. Um, <laughs> don't touch that. Like he wasn't have anything to do with it, but there's honey inside of it. The provision of God. I'm starving and here, there's honey, energy. Oh my goodness, God is so good. He knew, man, that's not where he's supposed to be. You are called of God. You are God's anointed. That is not for you. And we see that throughout the life of Samson, him compromising all the time. And so, man, may the Holy Spirit continue to just put that in our mind. Do you not know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? Every time we go to act or make a decision, do you not know that you're the temple of the Holy Spirit? You build upon the foundation of Jesus. Choose wisely. Choose wisely. Stop if you need to. Take a second. Think it through. Sit down. Drink a cup of coffee. Chill out and think about what you're about to do. Man, how much better decisions I would make if I just did that, right? All right, we're gonna stop there. Let's pray. Lord, we love you so much. We're so thankful, God, um, that someone planted and watered in our life and gave increase. Lord, you brought us to salvation. We're so thankful for that. And so, Lord, as we sing your praises, as we worship you tonight, as we close in worship, we just want to reflect upon that, the gift that is salvation. And we want to, Lord, give you thanks for those in our life that you placed in our life to, to share that with us and to encourage us. And, Lord, we want to be those that do that for others. And so, Lord, help us to look for opportunity to use the gifts and the talents and the abilities that you've given us in the opportunities that you've given us to share the gospel and to um, be that Christian that someone's prayed for. Uh, Jesus, we pray tonight, if there's anything in our hearts, in our minds, things that we're hung up on that need to be driven out, Lord, we pray that we would just um, hand them over to you, relinquish control, allow you to free us from those things. And so God, we wanna give you permission to, in your temple to do as you please. And Lord, we love you, we thank you. In Jesus' name, and everybody says, amen.